Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Richard Lang is one of my favorite um, new writers right now, and um, it is just so wonderful to have um, contemporary stories about where we're from and to have them be so good and so easy to recommend. I recommend books to people all day, every single day, and I take it very seriously. There is no book that I can recommend uh, more freely to more types of readers because he's got heart and plot. Who would have thought? Now, of course, I like to um, read just... A little list of brags. Um, Richard Lang's stories are called, or his, his work in general is called jaw-dropping, heartfelt, unforgettable, violent, truthful, devastating, stark, funny, tender-hearted, brilliant, and haunting. But my favorite is, a lot of writers try to write like this, but Lang just does it. All right, let's give him a warm round of applause. I wish it was that easy. I wish I just did it, you know, but it, it does involve a little bit of work. Oh, thanks. I'm a sloucher, so. So, uh, thanks everybody for coming. I know how hard it is to uh, to get over here on a, during a rush hour. Grady, would you mind? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I see a lot of familiar faces, but uh, I also see a lot of new faces. So, uh, yeah, thank you to everybody who came. Um, this is my new book, Angel Baby. It's my second novel. Uh, I'll just read a, I think I'm going to just read the first chapter, and then uh, you can ask questions uh, if you have any. Uh, it's basically the story. Uh, it's a, it's, well, it's kind of a, I was just talking to Carrie about this, uh, uh, well, my first novel, uh, This Wicked World, I, I don't, it was a short story, I'd written a book of short stories before that, and that's really all I'd ever written. And I ended up getting a, uh, a two-book deal with Little Brown, uh, on, and at that point they said, well, you have to have a novel if we're going to sign a two-book deal with you. And I had, I'd written like a third of a novel, and they didn't want that one, they, they didn't like it at all. It was like a post-earthquake LA kind of thing, and, and with a bunch of characters, and they just weren't interested at all. So 
I on the fly pitched them the idea for uh, This Wicked World, and back then it was a different book than than what it became. But I, you know, I just used like buzzwords like crystal meth, dogfighting, <laughs> desert, and they're like, yeah. So, so I ended up um, having to write that. And I was very nervous about, I hadn't written a word of it when I signed the deal, so I was very nervous about that. And so what I did is I said, well, what, like, what plot structure do I know pretty well? And it was the murder mystery where, you know, someone dies at the beginning and then you find out what happened to them at, at, at the end. And so I basically just said, I'm going to lay my story and the people I want to write about and the milieu I want to write about on top of this, you know, ready-made structure. So I'll have these uh, uh, guideposts that'll keep me and the reader moving through the book, you know, and I won't just get involved in writing descriptions of someone's bathroom or something. Like, I'll, 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 I'll be forced to keep moving on. So that was basically what I did on that book. I kind of cheated and used a template, and it wasn't a, I, I, didn't, I didn't follow the template exactly. It kind of got off it, but you know, it was a help when I'm writing that book. But it was still difficult. Even that much plot was difficult for me. So for this book, I decided I was going to try to get it even more basic. And I said, I'm going to just do a chase, where it be, the first chapter is the beginning of the chase, and it winds up in, in the last chapter. And that's the easiest little arc that I can then put in the things I really want to write about, I care about in the book, which are the people, the situations, the, the, the social observation. I wanted to write about Tijuana. I wanted to write about Compton, you know, exciting stuff. And so I just laid that over this chase template. And that's kind of the way this book was written. And uh, well, now I'll just read the, the first chapter. It's the story of a young Mexican woman who uh, decides to leave. She's uh, married to a uh, sort of a mid-level drug guy in Tijuana, and she decides to escape from him and return to the United States where she's left a, uh, for a, a small child. She left her when she was one. She's now turning, I think, four at the beginning of the book, or three. And she's decided to return, to leave this guy and return to uh, L.A. And the book is basically the story of what happens when she makes that decision and who she meets along the way and uh, you know there's a lot of action and twists and turns but there's also a lot of character development and uh, emotional stuff so <laughs> I guess I'll just uh, I'll, I'll read it and you'll kind of see what I mean once I uh, start reading uh, the, the opening chapter of uh, Angel Baby Uh, let me get a drink first. Uh, I wish. You didn't bring any cans in, did you? <clears throat> Luz didn't think things through the first time she tried to get away. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision. One night, Rolando beat her so badly that she peed blood. And the next morning, as soon as he and his, and his bodyguards left the house, she limped downstairs and out the front door, across the yard, and through the gate in the high concrete fence that surrounded the property. Barefoot and wearing only panties and a black silk robe, she stumbled down the street, trying to hail a cab. The driver slowed and stared, but none would stop. Tears of frustration blurred her vision. She tripped and fell, but got quickly back up 
Back to her feet, scraped knees and skinned palms wouldn't keep her from Isabel's third birthday party. She was determined to be there no matter what. She'd appear at the front door with a giant pink cake and an armful of gifts, and oh, wouldn't Isabel be surprised to see her. Maria, the housekeeper, stuck her head out of the gate and shouted for her to stop. Luz tried to run, but the pills that got her through the day back then made her feel like she was slogging through mud. Maria caught up to her before she reached the corner and grabbed her by the hair. Luz fought back, kicking and clawing, but then El Toro, the house guard, was there too. Help me, Luz called to a man on a bicycle, pleased to a woman pushing a stroller. But they, like the taxi drivers, ignored her. This was Tijuana, see, and if you valued your life and the lives of your family, you minded your own business. El Toro and Maria dragged her back to the house. They locked her in a room and laughed at her vows to get even. Rolander killed her dog when they told her that she'd run away. He stormed into the bedroom and yanked Pepito from her arms, placed the heel of his boot on the toy poodle's head, and crushed its skull. Then he forced Luz to the floor, twisted her arms up behind her back, and raped her there on the white shag carpet. Why do you make me do these things, he screamed at her when he finished. Why do you make me hate myself? It will be different this time. In the years since she last made a run for it, Luz has been putting together a plan. And now, finally, she's ready. Isabel turns four next Tuesday, and Mommy will be there to watch her blow out the candles on her birthday cake, or Mommy will die trying. She pretends to be asleep when Rolando comes out of the bathroom. He squeezes her foot through the sheet. Hey, sleepy, he says, time for breakfast. Mmm, Lou says, give me a minute. He's dressed for business in a dark suit, white shirt, and shiny black cowboy boots. Luz has consulted the calendar on his desk and committed today's schedule to memory. At a, an 11 a.m. meeting at Las Rocas Resort with Mr. Volkers from San Diego to talk about opening another KFC franchise, lunch at the same place with Alvarez, his attorney, then on to Ensenada to see Flacco. Though it says on the calendar that they'll be discussing horses, the real topic will be a shipment of heroin from Apatzingan. Luz has been listening closely to her husband over the last year and has learned all of his nicknames and code words. So Flacco and the dope, and afterward dinner with the whore he keeps down there. This means he won't be home until at least nine. When he goes downstairs, Luz crawls out of bed and walks into the bathroom to wash her face. The room still reeks of his shit. She brushes her long black hair until it shines, lifting it off the back of her neck to glance at the words tattooed there, Angel Baby. She convinced Rolando to let her get the tattoo by telling him it was the, her pet name for him. In reality, it's the title of a song she used to sing to Isabel during the year they had together. She's been careful never to let Rolando find out about the little girl because she knows he'd use anything she loved as a weapon against her or a chain to bind her more tightly to him. Wrapping herself in a white robe, she leaves the bedroom. Her footsteps echo in the two-story foyer as she walks down the marble staircase. On the street, Rolando is known as El Principe, the prince, and this is his palace. A 4,000-square-foot house with five bedrooms, six bathrooms, faux granite and gold everywhere, gold leaf everywhere, leather and stainless steel. Everything is expensive, but nothing goes with anything else. Rolando decorated by pointing at pictures in magazines. A fake Picasso hangs above a scorpion made of rusted iron. A $10,000 couch from Milan sits between two lazy boy recliners with massage motors and heated cushions. And the house itself is so poorly constructed, new cracks appear in the walls every day. It's a stucco and laminate fantasy that won't last much longer than Rolando does. 
He stands and pulls out a chair for her when she enters the dining room. Such a gentleman this morning. It's because he let her fuck because she let her, him fuck her last night and even went to the trouble of thrashing and moaning as if she were enjoying it. She wants him to think everything is perfect between the two of them when he leaves today. She fumbles with her napkin, yawns, and looks somewhat confused about where she is, playing the stone princess to the hilt. It's an act she's perfected in the six months since she managed to wean herself off the pills, the Xanax and Valium, Vicodin and Oxycontin that used to keep her from adding up her sins and hanging herself in the shower. She threw the dope away because she needed a clear head to plan her escape and because she didn't want to be strung out when she finally got free. But she's kept Rolando thinking that she's using. He's be he'd become suspicious if he discovered she'd stopped, and besides, he likes her high. It makes him feel superior. He returns to his chair across the table from her, and she smiles and asks in a sleepy baby voice when he's going to take her shopping for the shoes she showed him on TV the other night. Shoes, he says. You think I have time to think about shoes? She plays the game, scrunching her face into a pout and whining. But you said, Poppy, you said I could have them. I did, Rolando says. You know you did, Luz says, but when? How about when we fly to Acapulco this weekend, Rolando says. Acapulco, Luz exclaims and claps her hands. It wasn't easy quitting the drugs. In fact, to this day, there are moments like this, when her mind and body beg for the distance they provided. When this happens, she conjures the face of her daughter and prays to it as fervently as a primitive supplicating the only star in a pitch black sky. Maria bustles from the kitchen carrying a platter of pan dulce and a bowl of fruit salad. Good morning, senora, she says to Luz, sweet as can be. They've made peace since Luz tried to walk away, or at least Maria thinks they have. Luz has done her best to convince the housekeeper that she barely remembers that day, but she still can't tell if she's bought it. The woman is hard to read. Maria lifts the carafe from the table and fills Luz's cup with coffee. The sleeve of her blouse slides up to reveal a scar on her arm. It's from an injury she got in prison, where she did time for fencing stolen goods. She was the mother of one of Rolando's boyhood friends, a kid named Gatto who was killed early in Rolando's rise. Gatto made Rolando swear he'd take care of his mother if anything happened to him, and Rolando kept the promise by hiring the woman to oversee his household. Do you need anything else, senora? Maria asks Luz. No gracias, Luz replies. Senora, Maria says to Rolando. No, Maria. Gracias, Rolando says. The woman returns to the kitchen, and Rolando spoons fruit salad onto a plate and hands the plate to Luz. One of the parrots he keeps caged in the living room squawks, My name is Gladiator. My name is Gladiator. Where are you going all dressed up, Luz says. To fight a bull, what do you think, Rolando says, then bites into a pastry. Luz pokes at her fruit. Her stomach is tight with anticipation and worry, but she manages to swallow a piece of pineapple and makes sure Rolando sees her eating. And you, he says with food in his mouth, the fucking pig. Let me guess, a massage, a manicure? Both, says Luz with a laugh. Why not? It's a good life, no, Rolando says. A good life, Luz says, the words burning her tongue. She reaches across the table and takes one of Rolando's hands in both of hers. Rolando lifts a red rose from the base on the table and slips it into her hair above her ear. He smiles and starts to say something tender, but then his phone rings and his ice go ice cold. The human thing is all an act. He can turn it off and on like that. What he is inside is a monster, a shark, something soulless and ravenous. He stands and walks out of the room, barks K into the phone. El Toro, the guard who helped drag Luz back last year, 
lumbers in and grabs a sugary conch off the plate of pastries. Luz can feel the man's contempt for her. The boss's dope fiend whore of a wife has always felt it. Tell El Principe the car is ready, he says, before walking back to the kitchen. Luz passes the message on to Rolando when he finishes the call. He kisses her on the forehead and leaves without another word. She watches from the window as he climbs into the Escalade with Ozzy and Esteban. El Toro opens the heavy iron gate and gives a quick wave as the truck drives out. And so, it's time. Her first stop is the bedroom, where she turns on the television and crawls between the sheets again like she does every morning. Today, though, her fists are clenched and sweaty, her legs tense to run. At 10.15, there's a knock at the door. Yes, she croaks, making her voice froggy. Maria pokes her head in. Any laundry, senora? Luz motions to the bathroom without looking away from the TV and ignores Maria as she walks in and empties the hamper into a plastic bag and walks out again. She begins counting to 30 after the housekeeper closes the door, but only gets to 10 before she can't stand it anymore and pops out of bed. She has 15 minutes to make her escape. She knows Maria's and El Toro's schedules as well as she knows Rolando's. Maria will be in the laundry room at the back of the house and El Toro sneaks off to the garage every day from 10 to 10.30 to watch a soap opera on a little TV he keeps out there. She dresses quickly in jeans, a t-shirt, and tennis shoes. No makeup, no jewelry. A fleece jacket and a pink baseball cap, nothing more, go into a zebra-striped backpack, something a child would carry to school. She's traveling fast and light. Anything else she needs, she can pick up when she reaches the U.S. Heart pounding, she opens the door and checks the hall, then quietly descends the stairs. A radio plays in the room where Maria is sorting clothes, the DJ telling a dirty joke. When she reaches the ground floor, she hurries to Rolando's office and slips inside. On the walls are shelves of books the man has never read, the heads of animals somebody else shot, and paintings of sailing ships and knights in armor bought in bulk by a decorator. The only personal addition is a large framed photograph of a dark-haired woman lying nude on a bed, legs spread wide. Rolando likes to tell people that it reminds him of Luz. As soon as the door closes behind her, Luz relaxes a bit. She's been in here on numerous dry runs during the past few months, and now it's only a matter of following her plan. She goes to the big wooden desk and picks up the letter opener, a German World War II dagger with a swastika engraved on the handle, and uses it to pry open the lock on the top drawer. Inside is a fluorescent green post-it with the name Angelina and a phone number scrawled on it. Angelina is the name Rolando's mother gave to a daughter who died more than 20 years ago, the one the whole family now reveres as a stillborn saint. And the number, entered backward, is the combination to the wall safe, which is hidden behind a painting of a wolf hunt, men with fur hats riding in sleds, rifles, bloody snow. Luce sets the painting on the floor and punches the numbers into the safe's key bad, the pad. The locks click and the safe swings open. Inside are stacks and stacks of rubber-banded U.S. currency, hundreds and twenties, and a shiny silver gun, Rolando's custom-engraved silver-plated Colt 45. Snakes twine around skulls on the barrel, and an image of Santa Muerte is carved in ivory on the grip. Luce transfers the money, all of it, to the backpack and lays the gun on top. Bowing her head, she murmurs a childhood prayer. And God's name is still on her lips as she grabs the pack, stands, and opens the office door. You drop this, Senora, Maria says, holding out the rose that Rolando stuck and loses hair at breakfast, out here in the hallway. El Toro stands behind the woman, a mean grin on his ugly face. He's looking forward to hurting her. Both of them are. And then Rolando will finish the job. 
Luz backs up and reaches in the, into the pack for the 45. Rolando taught her how to use it on the house's basement firing range. At first he had to force her because she couldn't stand the sound and the thump in her chest when the gun went off. But over the past year, thinking it was a skill that might come in handy during her escape, she's practiced whenever she could and become a pretty decent shot. She racks the slide and points the 45 with both hands, doesn't flinch at the boom, boom, boom when she squeezes the trigger. Maria flies backward into El Toro, a jagged black hole under her left eye, a bloody volcano erupting out of the back of her head. The other two rounds hit El Toro in the chest and throat. He and the housekeeper go down together, tangled in death. The horror of what she's just done paralyzes Luz for an instant, like an icy hand suddenly gripping her neck. When she can move again, she drops the gun into the backpack and steps over the bodies, being careful not to look down at them. There's only one thought in her head, Isabel. When the big front door doesn't open on the first try, she panics and jerks the knob a few times before realizing that the deadbolt is engaged. A second later, she's on the porch. Four seconds later, she's out the gate and on the street. Ten seconds later, she's gone. Another scrap swept up in the noisy, stinking whirl of the city. Thanks. Thank you, thank you. So, you know, that's, I hope that makes you all want to, you know, immediately buy a copy and find out what happens. Uh, if anybody has any questions, I'll, you know, I'm ready to try to answer them. No? How is it writing from a female perspective? You know, it, it was interesting. I'd, I'd done it in some short stories before I uh, tried it here. I kind of practiced uh, in... in a couple short stories that I wrote, so uh, uh, it, it, isn't, it isn't that hard, I have to tell you. It isn't hard to write from, for me, it's not that hard to write from any perspective because all the characters sort of end up being me anyway. Uh, you know, they're saying the things that I want them to say, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're kind of sculpted by me. It's not like I have to recreate this psychology, I just use my own psychology. I guess it's probably analogous to what an actor does, where you just put yourself into a part and, you know, hopefully people buy it. You know, it's, 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 it's you, you worry all the, at least I worry all the time that someone's going to say, a woman would never say that, you know, or, or something like that. But so far it hasn't happened, but who knows? <laughs> Anything else? Uh, you use the present tense all the time. Right. Is that challenging in certain ways? For you? The, it, it's, it, that's kind of a weird thing. Uh, when I was in college, I wrote in the present tense a lot. And it was, I kind of had some early success, like in college, you know, like people liked my stories. And so I, I found that was a very easy, natural voice for me. But then, of course, I said, well, that's too easy, so I'm not going to write in the present tense anymore. So for like 10 years, I wouldn't write in the present tense anymore. And I just, I, I kind of started writing everything in, uh, in the, I mean, and in, I, I used to write in first person too. So I started doing everything in third person, and I just started trying to mix it up and learn new stuff. And finally one day, I said, don't be an idiot. You know, like, you're good at this, and the moment this is true, the moment I went back to writing 
uh, present tense and first person is when I got my first story published. So uh, I've kept it up through the uh, these books, you know, and I'm changing it up a little. I think the new one's going to be uh, at least it, it's still first person, but it'll be past. It'll it'll be past. Well, this is third person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do. I try to do that. Uh, you know, I try to do this thing where it's so it's it's third person, but you almost think it's first person because it's the way it's written and and a lot of it's weird. A, a lot of people on Goodreads say I hate books with multiple points of view, and I I didn't know is that a reader thing that readers don't like? I mean, I, I never I I'd never known that. So I get that a lot about this book and the uh, and the, the the first novel that they don't like multiple points of view and. I don't know, I just, that was something that I hit on because I wanted to sort of try to get everybody's voice down in, in the book while not mimicking them, but, you know, you're seeing them, you're seeing the world through their eyes, and it almost becomes like a first-person uh, experience. How long did it take you to write? This one took a year and a half. Yeah. It's, you know, is a long time. You know, it's not that long a book, but... Uh, I kind of had other things going on, and I, I, I write pretty slow. You know, I take my time, and, and you know, I'm lucky to have the, uh, the opportunity to do that, to, to take my time and not have to, to crank it out. I want to get faster, you know. But a year and a half's not bad, right? I mean, I admire these guys that put out a book a year, but I, I, don't, I don't think I'll ever, you know, I don't think I'll ever get to that, that, that pace. We'll see. What's, uh, speaking of writing, what's your outlining or uh, drafting process? You know, I don't uh, do that. You know, I, I, yeah, I don't. I don't really outline anything. I just start, and I kind of have a rough. Like on this book, I knew where I began and I knew where it ended, but uh, I got to chapter I think around ten. There's, it's an obvious spot in the book. You'll notice it's like it's where everything comes to a head, and suddenly things split up. And at that point, I didn't know what was going to happen after that. I mean, I knew the end, but I had to go and stop and figure out, okay, now what happens? How does the plot, you know, how do, how do I move these people around to get them to the, uh, to the end of the book? So, yeah, I'm pretty, which is why I uh, try to steal other plot structures, you know, and, and, and lay them over my own writing because then I don't have to figure out these, uh, you know, these little tricks. But I'm feeling more and more confident about it, and uh, you know, hopefully, I'll, I'll get better at it. And you know, I'm early in my career; I got, I got a lot of time to get good at stuff. Yeah, you. What are you reading right now? Uh, wow, a lot of stuff. I got, I get sent up some books for blurbs. I'm reading uh, Jerry Stahl's new book, which is really good, and. Uh, I'm reading a book by Daniel Defoe called Journal of the Plague Year. It's an old uh, book. When did he write? Uh, late, early 1700s, late 16s, and uh, it's about a, a plague that takes place in London, and it's sort of like this historical disaster. He's he's writing it 50 years on, but it's pretty fascinating how much. Uh, stuff has not changed in those kind of books, these disaster-y books, and it's also got some great uh, language. And I'm reading Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams, which is a short novella that he wrote. I uh, hadn't read it yet, and that's awesome. You know, he's a hero of mine in a, in a lot of ways, so uh, yeah, that's it right now. Oh, and a guidebook to Vietnam, because I'm going to go to Vietnam in October, so. When you talk about getting to a point where you don't know what happens next, so then you, you, you draw a different 
It's you know it's kind of like that. You sit down and you say what you know what what am I going to have them do? You know how? I got to the I got well I got to the end. Uh, you know it it. It, it, it's broad strokes. It's like, okay, they have to be here at this point. They have to be here at this point. But even within that, you, when you start writing it, it you, you figure out you can kind of mess it up a little. And then when you really figure out you can really mess it up is when your editor gets it and says, you should cut this whole bit. And then you go like, oh, okay. So all that stuff I worked on, I just cut out. And you figure out, shit, I could have just bridged it, you know, just like that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a process. Anything else? All right, well, then I, I'll sign some books, and uh, then, uh, you know, everybody can come and have tamales and beer at my house uh, afterwards. <laughs> Thanks again for coming. I know it's hard. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.